This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Just want to wish everyone a good morning again and welcome um, new uh, folks and visitors. Welcome to Austin Zen Center online. <laughs> I just want to very, very briefly introduce Tenku, who is uh, the Reverend Tenku Ruff Osho. Um, who has visited us before and probably needs no uh, no uh, introduction to many of you, but uh, Tenku is a fully transmitted priest who has trained extensively in Japan and North America. Um, I think I got to know her first actually through the Soto Zen Buddhist Association. She's the past president of the Soto Zen Buddhist Association, but I think our paths may have crossed at San Francisco Zen Center before that. Um, or almost crossed, I'm not quite sure. Uh, she's also a chaplain and uh, currently director of spiritual services at Phelps Hospital in New York and is uh, the head priest of now her own temple, Beacon Zen Temple in Beacon, New York in the Hudson River Valley. Um, and we're delighted that she found time in her busy life to come and be with us again. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Chodo. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for welcoming me to Austin Zen Center again. It's lovely to see all of you this morning. And um, I confess to waking up this morning with a craving for a breakfast taco, which unfortunately I did not have. <laughs> so one day I'll return to Austin and have those delicious breakfast tacos again. So um, today I wanted to talk about accountability. And this is something that's been on my mind a lot lately, and I've been weaving it into my talks a lot recently. And the central question I think about a lot is, um, who do we practice for? Who are we doing this for? And then maybe a subheading is how can we, how do we co-create the world in which we, we live? And, you know, that implies how do we co-create the world in which we want to live? Because, you know, the world doesn't happen to us passively. How we show up in the world determines the type of world that we get to live in. So how do we make that happen rather than sitting back and waiting for it to happen? And one aspect of that is learning how to be accountable to the greater community. Especially now we think about this as we approach the full moon and do in Soto Zen, we do the full moon ceremony um, on the full moon. And this time we really go back over our actions from the past month and think about how that went for us. What could we have done better? What, what's fine? Um, how do we strengthen our relationships? Because really this is all about relationships. What is our relationship with the entire universe? And how can we make that relationship with the entire universe fulfilling 
not just for us, but for everyone we encounter, because we can't um, separate those out. The more we make our relationship with the people we encounter fulfilling for ourselves, the more fulfilling it is for them. And the more fulfilling it is for them, the better it is for us. So accountability is about relationship and being together. And it all comes, it all, I guess I won't, I won't say it comes from, it comes out of refuge in the three treasures. This is the central feature of Buddhist practice for all Buddhists, no matter what tradition, that we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in the Dharma, we take refuge in the Sangha. Dogen Zenji, the founder of Soto Zen, as we know it, in his fascicle on taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, says that we take refuge in the Buddha because the Buddha is our great teacher. We take refuge in the Dharma because the Dharma is good medicine. We take refuge in the Sangha because the people in the Sangha are excellent friends for us. Buddha as teacher, including teachings, Dharma, oh sorry, Buddha as our own practice, um, Buddha as the original teacher and then our own manifestation of that, Dharma as the teachings that we have available to us and Sangha as our excellent friends, our community. So central feature not just a practice, but of, of really coming together in this practice is taking refuge in these three things. The Buddha, the practice itself, the Dharma, the teachings, and the Sangha, each other. And these three things are um, three aspects of the path that sometimes we feel you know, more partial to one or the other, but the truth is we can't separate them out. And there's a kind of a glue that holds them all three together. And that glue is our relationships. That glue is our shared values as a community. So what are these? We don't do this practice, you know, for ourselves. We must do this practice for the benefit of all. So what are our shared values? What holds us together? What holds together these three treasures of practice and how do we find balance in them? Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about shared values. And this was something that was taught to me by a friend who's a cultural anthropologist who really looks, she said she looks for shared values as a sign of whether a community will be healthy or not. And in fact, whether a community will survive as a community or not. What, what are our shared values? So in 
Buddhist practice, we have the shared value of refuge in the three treasures, as I just mentioned. Refuge in the Buddha as the practice itself, in the Dharma as the teachings, and the Sangha as the community. And when we take refuge, refuge is about um, creating the type of world that we want to live in. And refuge creates this um, sense of safety and um, home for us. Refuge is something in which we have recourse during times of great difficulty. And we all know this from this past year, right? It's been such a difficult year. And without our excellent friends, it would have been a lot more difficult of a year. So our excellent friends of the Sangha, our excellent teachings of the Dharma, and our practice, especially our inner practice, have helped us cope during this very difficult time, as they do for any difficult time, and as they do for any wonderful time as well. So what are our shared values? Core feature is refuge and the three treasures. And then what else? You know, we have a lot of um, shared values as, as a Zen community, so I can start there. Of course, I mentioned the full moon ceremony and the Buddhist precepts, so we have that shared understanding. In society, we also have shared understandings or shared agreements. Um, think about when you're driving your car, or we're driving our car, and we have a shared agreement that when we come to a red traffic light, we must stop, right? So we've, to get into the car, we have to have that agreement. Why? You know, not just because um, we might die if we don't stop, <laughs> but also, you know, we could kill other people if we don't stop. And not only that, but if we're just going... Um, totally crazy at a traffic light, then it clogs things up and there's no harmony. So in order to have harmony in our society, who are driving our cars, then we have a shared agreement that when the red, light is red, we stop. And if we all follow that shared agreement, then we have a much more harmonious experience as we drive. And it's just like this in our communities, in our practice communities. When we have shared agreements about how we want to be together as a Zen community with our excellent friends, then we can have a lot more harmonious relationships. And by, when I say harmonious, I don't mean um, um, vacuous. I mean rich full, you know, engaged, that when we have difficulties, we have a framework with which to, to um, work with them. When we have shared agreements for how we want to be in conflict together, then we have the opportunity to deepen our relationships. And it's this depth that really starts to create a sense of refuge. Because the more difficulties we encounter together, the richer our practice lives are, not just for ourselves, but for others. 
You know, when we have a, a challenge with somebody and we face that challenge and make it through, then our relationship deepens and our trust deepens. And we realize more and more that we're not in this on our own, but we're in this for the benefit of everyone. And not even just our own temple, but for those we meet in our working life, for our families, for the people we don't know so well, and even the people we don't like so well. This really is refuge. I think a lot about, I've been thinking about um, Uchiyama Rishi's instruction, or his um, final lecture, when he decided to step down from his temple on Taiji. And in that lecture, he talks about the, um, the sort of traps of practice that we can get sucked into. And he uses the six realms of Buddhism to unpack those. Um, the six types of Zen. So he goes through each one of those and um, sort of lets us know some of the things that we that can hang us up. So the six um, realms are the hell realms, and you know I I, I won't go into his whole lecture because I really want to talk about. Um, a couple of the, uh, just a couple of them. But in the hell realms, the basic thing is, you know, when we hate everything, um, we create our own hell. So um, that's a summary. <laughs> um, and then the next realm is the hungry ghost realm. And this is when we have everything that we need around us, but never feel satiated. And in our practice, um, this manifests as people who always feel like practice is going to happen on that perfect day. You know, right now things are awful and I'm really struggling and my back hurts and my mind is just wandering everywhere. But one day I'm going to be sitting here and bing, the magical experience is going to happen and then I'll be enlightened. And when that happens, I'll know everything. I'm going to have harmonious relationships. I'm going to know what to say in every moment. I'm going to love everybody, and I'm never going to be angry again. So this is a kind of um, hungry ghost kind of Zen, according to Uchiyama Rishi, with some embellishments by me. Uh, <laughs> the next is uh, Chikusho Zen. Chikusho Zen is um, the animal realms. And this is when we sort of give up our own sense of agency or our own responsibility and passively want to be cared for. So in the monastery, this manifests as, you know, some people want to just be fed, right? <laughs> or have a place to stay and get afraid to leave that. And I was thinking about this recently, and um, I was listening to a Holocaust survivor speak about her experience being liberated from one of the camps. And she watched some people who were finally freed when the gates finally opened, get up, leave the gates, and turn around and come back in 
and sit down. They were so conditioned to being in a cage that they literally didn't know what to do and they were free. And this is the animal hells that we can get stuck in. We have to envision freedom. We have to take the risk. And we have to um, get out of wanting things to happen to us, wanting other people to feed us, and start to take responsibility for our own actions. The next realm that Uchiyama Rishi mentions is um, Shurazen, or, wait, um, yeah, I can mention that because he put it in, in that order, which isn't often the order, but the order, the um, realm of the, the warring gods. And this is the realm in which, in practice, this manifests as um, people who are really keen on rising in power and position or competing with each other. So um, really eager to have authority or really eager to have a place of importance um, and not so eager to have the responsibility and the accountability that come with that. So people in this realm can get into kind of a competitive way of being or um, a very authoritative way of being. And this is the, the realm of Shurazen or the realm of the angry gods. So the ones that I, I really wanted to quote him on are um, the human Zen and the God realm. So Uchiyama Roshi says again in his um, farewell lecture for Antaiji that there's Ningen Zen, which is the human realm. This is the Zen that human beings do solely for utilitarian purposes. This is the thing I was talking, he was talking about previously. That's when people do Zazen to get their heads straightened out or for good health and so forth. Anyway, they do Zazen in order to gain something from it. There are a lot of books on humanistic Zen or Zen for the body or Zen of psychology or mindfulness for mental health, or various types of practice to get something. And then he says, these are clear examples of Ningen Zen, or human, the human realm of, of Zen, seeking something beneficial for ourselves. And then in, in this, the, the motive for, for Zazen is to get something in return, so more of an exchange. So when we get it stuck in this realm, um, it's kind of, uh, we think, well, I'm going to do this practice in order to um, be a healthier person. I'm going to do this practice so I'll feel less stressed. I'm going to do this practice um, so that I don't feel so angry. And those might be benefits of the practice, but they cannot be our primary motivation. And then finally, quoting Uchiyama Roshi again, we come to Tenjo Zen, which is the, the God realm. And he says, these are the people who want to become hermits. And there seem to be quite a number of, of Americans who like this kind of Zen. <laughs> it seems as though these people are trying to run away 
from the noise of American materialism. So they go up to the mountains to bathe in the quiet relief they find there. Or when they get bored doing that, they get caught up in Zen as a hobby and enjoy just polishing the scepter of, that priests carry around. Just, oh, this is really nice. And I enjoy this part of it. I enjoy this part. These people are just practicing Zen as a hobby. So naturally, this sort of, of Zen has nothing to do with the Buddha Dharma. And to figure out um, whether or not you're practicing true zazen or not, you have to look at your, um, your motivation and practice. What are we doing this for? We're not doing it for our health. We're not doing it for safety. We're not doing it um, to get something. We're not doing it to become someone special. And um, we don't get the magic stick. You know, <laughs> one day the magic doesn't happen and all of our problems go away. So what do we have here? What do we have? We have a rich garden. We have a garden with compost, with weeds, with flowers, with life, with sunshine and rain. And in this rich garden, we start to co-create the world that we want to live in. And the more we put into our garden, the more productive this garden becomes for every single aspect of the garden. Two main aspects of this garden are um, responsibility, as I mentioned, which are the values that we get from the inside out through our practice, and accountability. Accountability is how the community holds us. Accountability is how our actions manifest in relationship to others. If you take it and reverse the order of the words, it's the ability to be counted upon. How do I show up in a way that allows others to count on me? How do I take my inner responsibility and bring that into community? How do I accept the responsibility for my own actions? And how do I um, own my role in the community as a whole? This is real accountability. When we're in community, um, you know, I've heard some people say many times, Oh, you know, I wouldn't presume to tell anyone what to do. Oh, no, I couldn't possibly say anything about X, Y, and Z because I wouldn't presume. I'm inviting you to presume, but not to presume based on your own ideas, to presume based on the agreements that we keep together, that we have invested in to presume based on the precepts, based on the Buddhist teachings, based on this life that we want to be in together. How do we get there? You know, as I mentioned, the three treasures. 
we can really personalize those too. When we talk about the Buddha as teacher, this is readily available to us as we find our own inner teacher. As we sit zazen, following our breath, letting go of our thoughts, we start to drop our idea of me as a separate self, of my ego, and really open up to connection with others. Our own zazen practice gives us this. But as you know, we don't do zazen all by ourselves. It's literally impossible. Every time I take a breath, a part of you literally enters a part of me. If we haven't learned that this year during this pandemic, then what have we learned, you know? Every time I take a breath, this virus that is part of our world, it's not separate from us, can go in. And every time I take an out breath, the same thing. So let's be really conscious about what we take in and what we send out. These are our shared agreements. How do we want to be here together? And when I say um, presume to take responsibility, this is the compost I was talking about. Sometimes we can get into this um, trap. And, you know, I mentioned in my, my talk's title of bespoke Buddhism, which is a thing in uh, New York where people have custom-made suits. They're called bespoke suits. So you have to have a, a suit that's cut exactly for your own body. But then that word bespoke started becoming the, the word for everything. You know, I think you could probably get a bespoke latte at this point. Um, which means like I create the world according to how I want it to be around me. And this, the more we get into that, the more we wall ourselves off, the more we back up and back up and back up. So accountability requires us to invest in the relationship together. The idea that I can create this world without all of you is a trap. And when I talked about the compost, that's the accountability piece. That's where we show up. So what does that look like? It looks like just um, talking to your friends. You know, be brave. You know, hey, Bob, um, wow, that was a weird noise the other day. What was, what was going on? You know, it's that simple. If we already have a relationship with Bob, then we can do that. If we don't have a relationship, it's a little harder. You know, some of you that I see here that I've met before, I can say, um, you know, hey, Choto, wow, you're looking, you don't look so good today. What's happening? Are you feeling, you know, would you say that to a stranger on the street? No. But if that's your friend, you can say that. And you look fine today, Chodo. I just was using that as an example. Um, once we have relationship, we can start to speak. And then we can take that you know, a little further. When we have shared agreements, say, for example, um, not to misuse intoxicants, you know. 
a, um, I don't know, I'm going to pick somebody else so that I can feel comfortable. Bruce, um, Bruce, you know, I saw you last week and you were just falling over on the sidewalk. You were so drunk and I, that is not typical for you. So I'm wondering if, you know, something going on, can we talk about it? So that's like a shared agreement that we can speak about together. And, um, you know, obviously I, I, I don't think I've ever seen that happen. So I'm not going to guess that's a common <laughs> experience. So once we have shared agreements, then we start to be more accountable to each other. And once we're more accountable to each other, we have a more rich and beautiful life together. When we're having a hard day and we don't want to come for Zazen, we can really count on all of you showing up for me. And when I'm having a great day and I'd rather go outside and play, I can show up for all of you. And in this way, we co-create the beautiful world that we want to live in. We make it together, not on our own. It's the only way. I can't say this strongly enough. The only way is to be all in this together. It's literally impossible to separate out. So we may as well go ahead and show up for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. So we have time for uh, questions for uh, Tenku or comments. Yeah, I, I guess I have a question. If we are seeking health, it seems like a good idea because how can we show up for other people if we're unhealthy? You know, or show up for other people if you're angry a lot and that's getting in the way. You know, um, then those are reasonable things it seems like to practice for because it's a foundation for other things. So I wonder what you thought about that. Thanks, Carol. Um, I'm glad you asked that too. Um, because, you know, as we do practice, then we do have those ideas and those intentions, and they're not bad. It's just they can't be our only thing that we go for. We have to um, be in all of this together. So we don't do this practice just for our health. But sometimes that's our original motivation. And, you know, we say there are 10,000 Dharma gates. So whatever gets you through the door is great. And if that's what got us through the door, then um, wonderful. And then once we're through the door, um, as the practice starts to work on us, we realize that there's a lot more than just my health. And maybe it, my health never changes, but my um, way of being with it changes. Maybe it does. You know, there's a story I like um, about the Buddha who had a disciple who was um, really missing women and one woman in particular and um, the Buddha, as I recall, took him to the world of the nymphs and they saw these beautiful nymphs with um, doves feet, you know, whatever that means. And they're so beautiful and so much more beautiful than the particular woman the monk was missing. 
that he, the Buddha said, well, you know, you practice and then you can go to this realm and be with all these nymphs with dove's feet. <laughs> and so then the, the monk practices really diligently and, you know, keeps practicing and keeps practicing. And, you know, of course, through that very diligent practice, his desire to go to live with all the nymphs um, starts to dissipate. <laughs> so I think this can happen with us too. If we're really engaging, we're really trying and really listening to um, our bodies and to others and to the teachings. So, thank you. Oh, I saw a hand, but I don't remember. Yeah. Um, thank you, Panko. I thought it was just a wonderful talk. And I don't really have a question right now, but I know that this talk is going to stick with me for a while and I'll probably have questions later. But I just wanted to thank you, and I'm so glad you explained what bespoke Buddhism was because <laughs> I, I could not figure that out at all. I could have done that in the beginning. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that is fine. You killed the suspense. So, um, yeah, I think it was a very important talk. And we had a, a, a community discussion last week on harmony, and I thought you added a certain amount of richness to that idea also. Thanks, Pat. Just next, and then Michael. Uh, thank you. Uh, Tenku, you mentioned um, Uchiyama Roshi's last lecture, um, and it's in it's in opening the hand of thought. It's the last chapter, and it, and and it says. Um, Zazen must work concretely in our daily lives as the two practices, vow and repentance. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what that means? Because I'm interested in that question, yeah. what that means. Sure. Um, I, I'll talk about it, you know, from my own perspective, not sure. because mm -hmm. I'm not Uchiha mm -hmm. um, So, you know, they, they're like um, the same as responsibility and accountability. There are these um, two, uh, two things that keep us in balance. So we continually renew our vows, but we don't renew our vows. We don't make vows knowing that we're gonna get the magic stick and you know everything's gonna fall away. When we make vows, we make vows knowing that we're gonna mess up. And knowing that we're going to mess up is the human condition. We are human beings. Human beings mess up. That is a basic truth. And if you think that you're going to practice until you don't mess up, then that's, you know, going off into a different, to the God realm or something. We're, we're humans. Humans mess up. That's the compost I was talking about. So when we inevitably mess up, we have to make repentance for that. And I'll add in repair. Um, so we have to acknowledge what we've done. And then we have to come back into relationship again. And this is what repentance offers us. The chance to say what we've done to mess up and to renew our vows or our intentions not to do it. And this is, a, this is like a dynamic relationship that really keeps things growing because each time this happens, we get more depth of relationship. 
you know, I, I think I've talked with a lot of you about um, making apologies and how I've, that's something I learned later in my life. And I had a, a, an instance with a close, a very close friend of mine where I actually, I didn't technically do anything wrong. And yet she was very hurt. So I had to figure out how to apologize for what I did do. And then to say it, you know, out of my mouth, you know, I'm so sorry. I did this and I'm sorry. And this is how I'm not going to do it again. That's repentance. And after that, she said to me, you know, I was worried that our friendship was over. But after you apologized, then I feel so much closer to you now. So this is, this is vow and repentance. And this is also responsibility, how I want to be in the world, and accountability, how y'all are going to hold me to my vows. And these two things are very dynamic as well. And that's how we grow. You know, that's how we become more real, more fully human. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Michael and then Bruce. Thank you, Tenku. Um, where I get held up uh, often is uh, with the, the community at large, say this country, and um, our shared values and the interpretation of shared values. So to use your analogy of obeying uh, uh, traffic lights, if uh, you know everyone applies their value of say in this country the word freedom is big mm. but there are different interpretations of freedom libertarian interpretation is well i'm free to do whatever i want even run that red light if i feel like it if it's important to me and um i don't know what i'm going to teach that person in terms of being accountable i don't know that that's my job mm -hmm. the best i can do is protect myself from being harmed by staying away somehow or being extra careful and trying not to judge that person as wrong or sad or lost or whatever my judgments are. I guess there's a question in there somewhere. I don't know. Thank you, Michael. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, I worry that in our nation, we, we don't have shared values. I worry that we're becoming so polarized that our shared values are starting to separate out. So when that happens, how do we come back into relationship? How do we find our way back in to shared values? So I think we come back to the things we can all agree on. You know, um, as the Dalai Lama says, all beings want to be happy and don't want to suffer. So we can probably all agree on that. I want to be happy. I don't want to suffer. So that's really basic. And then start to build from there. And the only way we can build from there is by how we show up, our own responsibility. So, you know, we're seeing this right now so much with, um, with you know, the, the mask wearing, polarization, um, we can't control whether other people wear a mask or not. 
So we can't necessarily prevent them from killing us, <laughs> it, but what we can do is prevent ourselves from killing them by wearing our own. So when we do that, when we show up at that way in the world and with kindness, then we start to create the type of world we want to be in. You know, I was thinking about that a lot. I, um, I visited my uncle this week who um, almost died from COVID and he's a very libertarian. And when he got sick, you know, he, he was not wearing a mask. And he did not believe in wearing a mask. And he got sick. And when he got sick, I had only one thought, just one thought. And that was, I love my uncle. I didn't give a rip about his politics, you know, about how he got it. About I just was like, I love my uncle, and I don't want him to die. So that's where we come. That's a shared value, is love for other people. And, you know, he, um, he didn't die. He lived. I don't even know how. It's, it's unbelievable. But during that time, he shifted. Something in him really turned. And he, when I visited him this week, he was the same. He met me the same way that I had felt about him, which was just pure love. And this is a basis that we can all come back to. And, you know, even when we disagree on stuff, that's a shared value. So I think we can find those shared values, but we have to work a little harder at it and we have to co-create them. Thank you. Bruce? Thank you. It's very good to see you again, even if it's in a little tiny square and... Uh, you know, I apologize for being so inebriated the last time. Apparently, you saw me. I don't have any memory of this, but uh, you know, I appreciate you holding me accountable <laughs> in the hypothetical realm. Um, I, I, I wanted to, well, thank you for the talk, but in particular, I think it, it, it helps bring together some things um, in, in a way that I find helpful. And on one level, I think it, it points to the importance of watching out for when things become too comfortable or feel too safe um, in, in practice. That, that, that's, that's what I take for it anyway, I, or, or, or to having maybe a more skillful attitude towards the things that feel awkward um, and unpleasant. Mm. Um, to, you know, showing up, being responsible um, for that, being willing to be held accountable my question, though, is more about what you said about relationship and presuming. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to explore further this question of how to speak up in a way that, um, to use language from another world, um, mm. keeps me in my own lane, where I'm not presuming in a judgmental, that's none of my business fixing sense. I don't like this. And so I'm going to tell you because you need to like, accord with my likes or whatever, or, or I know what's best for you. But at the same time, also avoiding, and this is, this is more the trap for me, I hope, 
than being <laughs> judgmental and fixing is uh, I, I want to be, become better at maintaining my own boundaries and not becoming codependent in, in the sense of um, I'm going to speak up because what you're doing is making me uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm, I don't know, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling as articulate as the thought was when it flashed into my head. But the, the basic sense is I want to avoid a dynamic where I'm either trying to fix you or I'm kind of taking your suffering onto myself and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the relationship is such that I feel a connection to the other person. Mm-hmm. And when I see them doing something that's not helpful to them, I want to say that, but I don't want to make it too much my thing as well. If that okay. makes sense. I'll jump in. Yeah. Um, when we um, show up with responsibility, when we take vows, we are giving other people permission to hold us accountable. That's what those shared values do for us. Um, so I'm thinking back, you know, I'll use um, Blanche Hartman as an example because I know I all love Blanche so much and so do I. So um, I had these friends um, who were, had a um, marriage ceremony in front of the community, right? And so they took vows with the Sangha present watching. And then, you know, skip ahead a few years and they started to have trouble in their marriage. And um, a lot of people felt like, oh, you know, I have nothing to say about that. I wouldn't presume to judge. You know, everybody has troubles and I wouldn't, I don't have anything to say. So a lot of people just really like ran away, ran away, ran away, but not Blanche. Blanche sat down, one of the two in the couple and said, look, you took your vows in front of me and in front of the community. So I ha- it's my job to hold you accountable to your vows. That's what you did by taking those vows in front of me and in front of the community. You asked me to hold you accountable. So I'm asking you, what are you doing? And when that person told me the story, because the person who told me the story was not Blanche. It was the person Blanche spoke to. They were so grateful that they started to cry. And they said, Blanche was the only person who spoke to me that way. That's the relationship. So then um, to go a little further, Bruce, um, we don't have to make it up. We have the whole of Buddhist teachings in front of us. You know, if we don't know what to say, we have the principles of right speech, right? What are the principles of right speech? Is it timely? Is it the truth? Um, Do I speak gently and not harshly? Is it beneficial? And do I speak with a heart of goodwill? Okay, so check, 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 check. Have I done that? (laughs) Or, you know, think about um, other principles. You know, in our our society, we, we not only have the Buddhist teachings, but I know a lot of you have done right use of power training. So that teaches you how to um, 
um, how to be in relationship, how to have healthy boundaries, how to speak up, how to apologize. So we, we don't have to make stuff up. We have the things we need available through the teachings, through our own inner teacher, through our zazen practice, and through the, the community, the, the, the community at large, which reflects back to us. So we don't have a community. We don't have anyone to try that out with. You know, we don't have the chance for more depth. So um, I think what you're puzzling with is really important. So find the right tools for the situation, but most of all, um, take the risk. Because when you mess up, you, you have to talk to the person. And it, the first time you talk to them, you're, it's probably going to be awkward. You, know? <laughs> like, um, you have to build that trust. And we even mess up making apologies, right? You know, we, we not just mess up on the original thing, but then we mess up our apology until we've tried it a few times and then we can become more comfortable with it, just like everything else in practice. So thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Mary, Mary Shepard. Tango, thank you. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, it was so eloquent and I, I'm really grateful for it. And one thing you said, I would appreciate just having you say a little bit more on mm -hmm. is um, when back in the day when I started Zen, I had another meditation practice and then a little more than a decade ago, I, I started my Zen practice. I was really starting the practice to um, make myself a little less neurotic. It was a, a really kind of selfish thought. It just, I was just going to kind of get my mind calmer. And then you said this, you, I just heard you say, when you, it doesn't, matter why you enter the practice because the practice starts to work on you mm -hmm. and I would just appreciate your um, saying a little more about that because uh, in it it seems like it's one of those real truths that it's, it's like it resonates to the core Thank you, Mary. I don't know if I would say it doesn't matter, um, but maybe I would say that sometimes our original motivations um, shift, can shift over time. So um, thinking about myself, um, which because that's easy, you know, um, I don't have to point out anyone else. Um, I think I was all, I realized somewhere in my practice that I wanted to do this practice to become perfect. So I was a person pretty oriented towards perfection. And um, I thought I would start doing this practice and never make a mistake again. So that was my motivation, right? And I was going to be enlightened. And also, I really, this is really true. I mean, the reason I talk about this stuff, it comes out of my own experience, you know, um, that I really thought that I'm going to do this practice to become enlightened. And when that happens, 
then um, I would know what to say in every situation. You know, I would know the perfect response for everything. I know the perfect thing to do in every situation. And I that is true. I do know the perfect thing to say in every situation. And sometimes that perfect thing to say is, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or I really messed up. Um, so that's what the practice taught me over time. It didn't make me less of a perfectionist. It gave me space to be who I am. So um, if you're a person who's a little bit neurotic, then it's not going to make you not neurotic. That's your basic building blocks. But that has a positive quality too, you know? Maybe you're more attentive than others. Maybe you're more careful than others. Maybe you notice the small details when your friend, you know, when just one eyebrow's up just a little bit, you're like, oh, you know, I know that when Tim's eyebrow goes up just a little bit, that means he's really scared. You know, so that has a positive side too. So you're not trying to get rid of who you are, but really actually fully become who you are in a way that, that um, blends into this wonderful tapestry of human beings that we call a sangha. Does that, does that get towards your... Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. And, yeah. Thank you so much for your talk. This is a really good topic for me. I just read an article about some of the recent shootings and the author said something really interesting that I've been thinking about. And that is that as Americans, we're not guilty for the shootings, but we are responsible. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you had any comments uh, about that kind of a statement. We're not guilty for the shootings, but we are, you know, um, yeah, let me try. <laughs> um, but we are responsible. The person who, the shooter was one of us. And whether we see that as one of us as Americans, one of us as human beings, one of us as our beloved community, or one of us as literally this person is not separate from me. You know, because in a, in a world of interconnectedness, we literally are not separate. So this, the shooter is one of us. So as a human being, we have a responsibility to that. And yet, um, you know, we didn't pull the trigger ourselves. So in fact, to, to feel that we did would be kind of um, uh, a little egotistical, you know? So what we need to do in this situation is, is to really um, hold the responsibility that this is one of our family and then look at the accountability piece. How can we work on a world where this kind of thing doesn't happen more? And when people do stuff like that, how do we hold them accountable? And it maybe it's not just the shooter, you know, that we don't need to hold accountable. It's our lawmakers and it's our laws and it's our whole society. So that's where the, the accountability piece comes in. Um, yeah, that was, it's kind of a hard question because that's not the framework that I would have chosen for myself, but I hope that, you know, gets in there a little bit. 
I was thinking about, um, there were, it was many years ago, um, a teacher, a Zen teacher, you know, I'll say, was got into a, a hard place and was drinking a lot to the point where they were endangering others, you know, by, by driving. And a lot of people had the idea of saying, you know, well, we're all peers, you know, all the Zen teachers, I, we're all peers. And, you know, that person has their own temple and I wouldn't presume to tell them what to do. But if we don't speak up, what if he kills someone? You know, so when we have a relationship, like if we know his name and we're friends with him, we can sit down and talk. And if he doesn't listen, then we have to do a little more. That's our accountability piece. So um, I think you asked about guilt. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to address guilt. I would say guilt is useless, but um, accountability is useful. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave that hanging in the air for you. <laughs> So thank you. Uh, Melanie actually is ready to offer something. There she is. Hi, Melanie. Hi, thank you. The theme that came up for me in relationship to your talk this morning, which I also find timely and also appreciate all the other people who have spoken, as usual, who bring up things I hadn't even thought about is regret in relationship to the theme. And I think about one, things I've done or I repeat that are harmful, um, kind of like an alcoholic who doesn't quit drinking even though they, they're going to meetings or they're doing this or that. Or somebody's died and I never uh, resolved that relationship. There are things, you know, it's time goes by that I wished I'd revealed or said or done differently or mistakes I've made that I never cleaned up that, you know, maybe it was years ago or maybe it wasn't that long ago that do I, do I go back and clean them up? Oh, that's a great I, question. Oh, that's so that's my, that's my little set of questions. Thanks, Melanie. Um, you have to first clean up in your own mind. Um, so those mistakes are not, uh, you know, permanent Mars on our on our persona, their information, their data for us. So um, if there's something that's really bugging you and it happened a long time ago, then what can you learn from it? And what, how can it inform you now? Um, and then if you're, I don't know, you know, if you can go back, that's pretty hard, right? But sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, I remember many years ago, I, um, I wanted to apologize to my brother for um, the times that I was mean, like to him as a kid, you know, like that I actually you know, punched him or something. And I did, you know, and he had such a different perspective than me. And so that was really healing for both of us. And it helped our relationship deeper. And then another time um, recently, I tried to make an apology. I, I was demonstrating the apology formula that I've shared with a lot of you before. And I was like, well, I always felt bad about this thing I did in junior high school. And so I tried to make an apology for then junior high school. 
and it fell flat. It was terrible because I have no relationship with that person anymore. It was a, you know, totally flat. So then I had to look at, you know, okay, well, what do I regret about that time? And I think it's time to let it go. You know, I'm a different person now. So um, if you're holding on because you want to go backwards and try to fix, then it's not really possible. But if you, if there's something that keeps bugging you, then that's valuable information that you can use now in the present moment. You know, um, Shanti Deva says, if I can do something about it, why get upset? If I can't do something about it, why get upset? We can take that information, that data, and use it, but I think it's going to be up to you to see if that's beneficial or not. And it's going to take trying, you know, trying out. Like, I didn't think that when I was demonstrating that apology, I didn't anticipate it going flat. But um, my community reflected back to me, like, "Mm, that just didn't work. And I was like, huh, why didn't that work? So then I thought about it a lot, you know, and that, that kept going. So I had to be in a relationship with others to, to help me get to that point. I didn't figure it out by myself. So I think, um, you know, try. That would be the, the main thing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I had one more question. Could you yeah, fine. say the things that when Bruce asked his question, thank you, Bruce. Um, you went through a set of things really quickly about, you know, before you spoke. Mm-hmm. You did the thing you were going to do to talk to someone. Could you re- Right. Oh, the Buddha's teachings on right speech. So, and I just, I did a talk about this a few weeks ago. Um, it's on the um, Beacon Zen Temple's oh. YouTube channel. But I'll right. mention them again. Because um, they're really helpful. You know, well, I, sometimes I keep a sticky these stuck on my computer um is it timely think about that you know is it the right time um is it true do i speak um, with a gentle voice and not harshly you know so so cursing at somebody might be considered harsh you know (laughs) um you blank 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 is not going to make them receptive um is what I need to say, is it beneficial or is it necessary? And then finally, do I speak um, with a kind heart and with goodwill? Thank you. Thank you, yeah. I wanna speak from the Tanto seat, the head of practice seat, which I happen to occupy right now. And just say there's an excellent opportunity which Tenku actually alluded to where we can repent and repair um, through through ceremony, which is Wednesday night, we'll have the Bodhisattva ceremony, the full moon ceremony she mentioned, and uh, <clears throat> 6.45 on Wednesday, um, and it's on Zoom, and you can get the link uh, from the website, just sign up, uh, you get the links, uh, the secure link to the ceremony, and I just encourage everyone to Come if you can, and if you're not in the habit of doing it, try it out. It's a really ancient ceremony. It's uh, I've heard pre-Buddhist even, um, and and monthly opportunity to just do what Tang was talking about: reflect on our actions and our where we've come up short, or you know, and uh, vow to start over. So we we renew our vows 
and um, it's very powerful. It's a little weird. It's one of our more esoteric ceremonies, <laughs> I think. You know, the chanting is so melodious and a little different than than some of our chanting. But anyway, don't uh, don't hesitate. I invite you. So thank you so much, Tenku. Uh, yeah. Great to see you. Thank you. Wonderful talk. Yeah, great to see you too, and everybody.